nice to see your faces. Welcome this morning. Uh, for those of you who have come back to in-person services, Pajama Church, although hard to sort of outgrow, it isn't the same as being in the building, is it? There's something different when we show up in the room, right? Am I the only guy who thinks that? I never got to do Pajama Church. I want a refund. I want a refund. I want my refund on COVID. Can anybody arrange for that? Anyway, it's good to be in the same place. To some degree, you guys, and I know this is awkward to mention for those who join us exclusively uh, by distance, for those out-of-towners, but to some degree, community is always going to have to have something to do with being bodies in the same space. Now, I know some of you don't, some of you live in Sugarland, and that's awkward, but Dana's here every chance she can get. Community is something that I think we don't even know how much we miss it yet until we begin to come back. So if you're making the jump and you're getting back in the building, I want to congratulate you. I think that what the, the energy that happens when we gather and do these things that we do is, is untallied as of yet as to how much we may have missed that. So anyway, addition by way of subtraction has been the theme this Lenten season. Now, you can never trust preachers with math. That's how you end up with a 6,000-year-old earth. That's my favorite joke of all time for a million reasons. First of all, I never get the math wrong. Um, but addition by way of subtraction has been the theme that we've been following, and I'm hoping that you're beginning to see the logic of this, the logic of Lent, gently stack in your heart and in your mind, and I'm hoping you're beginning to see the gift of, of clearing things away, of minimizing, of literally taking things off the table. I hope you're beginning to see that. You see, what happens when we do that is that we actually create new capacity for new things to grow and thrive, and I think that's what we're moving towards now. Easter will be that great reminder that all things come again, all things come back. But the tragedy of Easter might be getting all the way there and having no room for a risen Savior in your heart and in your mind. And so we take our time as we do this. And I hope that this is beginning to connect for you. And if it is, then we've done our work well during this Lenten season. You see, Easter doesn't just happen. I say this all the time. We don't just stumble one day into an empty tomb. Easter is a process. It's a journey. It's a pilgrimage. It's, just, it's a season. It's a whole season. It's so much more than just pastel little button-downs and clip-on ties. Any guys remember that when you were a kid? What I mostly remember about Easter was having to wear this awkward thing, and the smell of mom's coffee recycled through her wet thumb as she tried to control the colic from the back seat of a 68 Chevrolet station wagon. And I just remember the shame of showing up smelling like mom's coffee for Easter. I don't know if that's just only my memory. But it's, Easter is about so much more than just little pastel button-downs and clip-on ties. It's more than, than, than fresh-cut lilies and swoopy hats. It's more than hiding eggs in a spiral-cut ham, which has to be the most ironic way to celebrate an ancient Jewish rabbi is by eating ham on Easter. I can't ever make sense of it. I asked Dad when I was barely old enough to talk, and he's like, your questions are too big for me. I have no idea what to tell you. Curious one. At any rate, Easter is the centerpiece of our faith, but we don't own the truth of it, and this is important. This is a truth that is actually universal. It's as observable in the fields of biology and astrophysics as it is in the fields of Christian theology and practice. You see, all things are made again. They're made new through death. That's the truth that we gather around as Easter people. Things stay. They remain. They are reconstituted. Of course, they change, and of course, it's hard, and of course, it's, it's a rough transition, but all things are reborn and reconstructed after they die. And as we've been discussing, new things need room to thrive. It's just the truth. And that's where Lent comes in. 
It's our golden opportunity to release what no longer serves us, the things that distract and clutter us. It's our chance to make room for the fresh things, for new things to set down new roots. And as intuitive as this never-ending process may be, as observable as it is at every observable layer of the cosmos, whether you chase it with a telescope or with a microscope, we still somehow struggle to accept the process, don't we? Specifically, the part where we struggle the most is where we are invited to release our grip on something that we love. There's a bit of irony in the way that we're made, if you think about it. We were built to constantly change. We were made to morph and adapt and molt and adjust, and yet we resist change, don't we? Maybe I'm only talking to myself this morning. And I'm not just talking about gentle resistance. Many of us manage to muster monstrous opposition when it comes to letting go of the things that we know. Even though we know new things, new things will always take their place where older things were, Despite a lifetime of personal experience seeing new life emerge from the ashes of what was, even still we fight it as if our very lives depended on it, don't we? You know, sometimes I feel like the only way this death and resurrection concept or this process makes sense is in the rearview mirror after we've survived it, when it's behind us. I nearly always grip too tightly whatever I can get my bony fingers on, somehow weirdly convinced that this time, surely this time, the cosmos will stop working the way it always has. This time, I somehow believe that life will just take and will give nothing in return. Surely this time, God has forgotten me. Surely this time, I will die waiting and wanting. I will die with nothing left but this hope and this hunger. And as absurd as that may seem, it would be if it weren't so true. And it's not just true for us. Jesus' friends struggled with the same things. It's my favorite thing about our text, is that we can peer into the very way that they were trying to wrap their heads and hearts around the same thing. Turns out we aren't all that different from the first followers of Jesus, at least not in this regard. How do you explain the shock and the surprise with which the friends of Jesus met the tragic events of Holy Week? Jesus actually spent a fair amount of time, as best we can tell, warning his friends and preparing them for the loss that they would sustain in Jerusalem, just ahead of them now. We aren't privy to all the conversations Jesus had with his followers naturally. In fact, we have relatively few of those preserved in our text, but even with the ones we do have, we can see Jesus spelling it out pretty clearly. And promise me, parents, you don't worry about those fussy babies in the room today. Nobody cares about that but you, so y'all can just pace and just take your time. It's good to hear some life out there. We aren't privy to everything that was said, but we have enough to be able to reconstruct something that I think is true. You see, all the metaphors were in place now. The motifs had been dialed in. Fig trees and re-entering the womb and seeds and soils and a good soaking in the river. That was no secret, you see. Dying and rising to new life was a major part of Jesus' teachings. And yet... As we know, the dots remained mostly unconnected by those who lived and ate and traveled and slept in the close company of Jesus, except for Mary. Mary Magdalene was different, as our text today bears witness to. So let's read that today. It comes, comes from John chapter 12, and it's verses 1 through 8, and it'll be on your screen. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, the home of Lazarus who had been raised from the dead. There they gave a dinner for him. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those at the table with him. Mary took a pound of costly perfume made of pure nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped them with her hair. 
The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, the one who was about to betray him, in parentheses, thank you, John, for the extra commentary there, he said, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He kept the common purse and used to steal what was put into it, says John. Thank you, John. John always offers us that extra little bit. Remember, John's the guy who reminds us that when there was a foot race from the empty tomb to the rest, it was, it was John that outran Peter. Thank you, John. Very important. I think it might be important to actually write the gospel of your time. That way you can add those little, you know, little bits about yourself in there. Anyway, verse 7. Jesus says to Judas, leave her alone. She bought it so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. And then he quotes an Old Testament passage. You, you always will have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Now, of all the things Jesus did, this one feels like one of the most normal to me. Think about it. Jesus was a little odd. He did some things. He was a little odd. Let's just be honest. He, he had a, a very weird way of fishing. Do you remember the time when he gets all bossy with the bass masters of his day and says, drop the net on the other side, and they catch all these fish? And then he says, you know, throw nets over people because that's what I'm going to do with you. He walked on top of the water. He talked to the wind. He made and he drank wine water at weddings, like by the gallon. He ate stolen lunches from little boys, and then he stretched it to feed a whole city. He spit on people's eyes in public. He shushed intellectuals to listen to children. He tore up a dude's thatched roof one time for a dramatic entrance. He messed with the decor of holy places, losing his mind all over people's faces. He rode borrowed baby animals through back gates on the bed of branches, and he had a very strange way of making friends. Sometimes he would walk up in the middle of a crowd, which is rude, and just say, follow me now. He was odd. He did some odd things, if you're honest. But going to a dinner party thrown in your honor at the house of dear friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, this feels to me like the kind of stuff that normal people do, except that this dinner party was covered in death. Think about it. Lazarus, who had already been dead four days, is now, after being summoned from the underworld or the overworld or whatever world he was in for four days, Lazarus was now trying to figure out how to live in a resurrected body. He was dead until he wasn't, and I'm guessing that was the motive for throwing this party in Jesus' in Jesus's honor. Mary and Martha, I think, wanted to thank Jesus for restarting, literally, the life of their brother. But death didn't hang in the air just because of Lazarus. No, no. Mary brought death to the forefront of everyone's mind when she performed an act of worship ordinarily reserved for burial. Now imagine if you were at a dinner party and all of a sudden one of your hosts whips out a catalog of funeral caskets and embalming agents. The 930 actually laughed at that, Trey. <laughs> Trey and I have like $20 bets on what, 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 who's going to be different where they're going to laugh. Imagine that, though. Now, it's not an exact facsimile of what happened in the book of John, in this memory, in this story, but it's not far off if you think about it. Mary, effectively, in the middle of a party, short-circuits the fun and festivities by anointing his feet for burial. That feels like a party foul to me. But you see, it seems, someone had been paying attention. Someone had been connecting the dots. While the others were still nursing ideas of the Jesus, they hoped that he might yet become someone was preparing for what actually lay ahead. The boys were hoping Jesus would still turn out to be the revolutionary, you know, the king, the ruler, the writer of wrongs. 
They wanted to double down and build on crowd momentum while it was surging. They were beginning to see their moment come into view. Now was when to strike. Now was when to spend money feeding the poor, as all savvy politicians do, and you know why. Because if they do, reasoned the Twelve, then the poor could be relied upon to rally behind the meteoric rise of this populist messiah. Now was exactly when not to start thinking about death and burial and stinking bodies and how to cut the smell. Now was precisely when not to obsess over the decay of human flesh. No one had time for dead. New was in vogue. Things were good and getting better by the day for this merry band of hopefuls. See if you can catch this in the wind. Oh, Mary, what have you done? Shouted the keeper of the kitty. Now you've killed the party vibe, yelled the money man. And he awkwardly snarls his corrective right in front of everyone at this until now normal dinner party in the company of comrades. You're wasting valuable resources on nonsense, insisted the Iscariot. Did I mention that he did this in front of everyone? Way to keep it classy, Judas. But Mary... <laughs> Mary had something more than a dinner party in mind now. Her observant eye was on the falling, not yet on the rising, and she knew which one had to come first. You see, as I said, Mary had been keeping good notes. She was paying attention, and as a person who struggles to pay attention, I both admire and envy her ability to follow the bouncing ball. You see, she was sharp, and her contributions to the inner circle of Jesus was often in sharp contrast to what they, mostly men, seemed able to infer and intuit. And it wasn't because she was be Jesus was being coy or dodgy or elusive that they weren't tracking. He had been clear, quite. But they were more in love, you see, with their idea of Jesus than they were with the road that lay ahead of them now. Some significant subtraction would need to occur before any meaningful addition could, could, could take place in the life of Jesus' friends. But Mary somehow seems to have already let go of ideas like glory without brokenness or liberation without sacrifice or rising without falling, new life without death. It was the sequence that made intuitive sense to her, I believe. Sequence matters, doesn't it? Even the right things in the wrong order don't equal the right outcome, friends. Sequence matters. And Mary caught it. She consistently did. Think about it. This wasn't the only time Mary got high marks for doing the right thing at a dinner party. Do you remember the time when Martha complained to Jesus that she was getting stuck with all the hard work while her sister sat at his feet doing nothing? Mary had a knack for knowing what to do when. Who was the first person to find the empty tomb? who was given then the enormous significant job of telling the others when she found the grotto unaccompanied Sunday morning exactly as I think she thought she would find it, who was there at the foot of the cross when the world went dark, when the earth quaked, when Jesus relinquished his spirit, when the fellows were all in hiding already? That's right, Mary Magdalene was. But the 12 didn't get it for them. You see, the clues didn't yet add up. They still had fight left in them, which is one of the many clues to me that there were women in the inner leadership circle of Jesus because they were listening to, and Mary certainly of them all, she caught it. She knew what was going to happen next. She rounded the bend as the others were trying to catch up. And you might say, well, how do you know? Well, because she was the only one who bothered getting his body ready for death and burial. Matthew and Mark remember this story a little differently. They placed this awkward gathering at the house of Simon the Pharisee, also known as Simon the leper. And they claimed that Mary, although they leave her nameless in their account, anointed Jesus' head, which would have been a public acknowledgement of his kingship, which is exactly the opposite of death. Which, of course, 
That's how they remember it. And for Mark, Matthew and Mark, it seems that they associate this anointing with coronation, not crucifixion. But in John's account, the anointer is named, it is Mary Magdalene, and he locates the dinner party at her house. And it was his feet that Mary anointed and washed. And to John, this is about death and burial, not kingship. Now, whatever you think of Judas, he made a decent point. From his vantage point, there was still, they were still ramping up Jesus' brand, you see. They weren't powering it down yet. And before you fault him for being uniquely clueless, at the time at least, he spoke on behalf of the twelve. This anointing was, if nothing else, annoying and wasteful, not to mention inappropriate. Remember, none of them would have wanted to see the death of their friend and rabbi Jesus. In fact, Peter was so thoroughly rejecting the idea that Jesus might have to die that he literally lops the ear off of someone in the garden who came to arrest Jesus on the night before his crucifixion. But you see, John wrote last, some 20 to 30 years after Matthew and nearly 100 years after all of these events occurred. And time clarifies a lot, my friend. By the time John wrote, whoever, or whoever finished the book in his name, Mary was the heroine and Judas was the heel. She is lauded for her intuition while Judas gets a last name, Iscariot. And you just need to know that that's not actually a name. That's a title that simply says, he's the scallywag, he's the false accuser. John clearly disliked Judas. But Jesus only offers him a gentle rebuke. Let her be, says Jesus, when Judas goes for the jugular in front of the rest, which feels odd to me if I'm honest. Jesus certainly knew how to deliver a blow when it was called for, sometimes even when it wasn't. If you don't ask, if you don't believe me, just ask Peter. But Jesus goes easy on Judas. Heaven has patience for us slowpokes, dear friend. It takes time to see what Mary saw. If you invert the sequence, which most of us do, if glory and resurrection and new birth and power and authority come before the Via Dolorosa, before the downward way, then selling this overpriced perfume to feed the poor made perfect sense. Oh, but the sequence matters. You can't get the order of coronation and crucifixion confused. It's all about the sequence and it's all about the math. Addition comes after subtraction, as we've been saying since Ash Wednesday. And remember, even the right things in the wrong order don't create the right outcomes. Pride would need to be subtracted from Judas, Judas but also from the rest. There was no room for preening or peacocking or public posturing or patting one's pockets, as John suggests that Judas was doing, not in the company of Jesus. Even recentering on the plight of the poor didn't justify the public scolding that Judas gives to Mary. Her act of worship, however, is defended as the wiser investment. She knew the way to brand new. It was through the hard, and she'd been there before. So follow Mary. The others will still be trying to catch up, and they would in time, but for now, Mary leads them all. And this washing of the feet stuff, this would stick in fact, Jesus would reenact something like this at the Last Supper a little over a week forward now from John's account. So, what does this story have to do with Lent? John is now focused on the events of Holy Week, as are we. Palm Sunday is next Sunday. But in order to follow Jesus into that holy city, like loaded beasts of burden entering a city by night through a tiny gate, not unlike the eye of a needle, there may, may yet be some unloading to do to make ourselves ready for the truth. Because, good friends, hear me now, Jesus walks the downward way, the low path, the highway of suffering and loss. It's also the way of resurrection and rebirth, oh, I know, but only after death. And the sequence matters. 
This is what Mary saw. Somehow it all added up to her. But how? How? What made her different? Well, the New Testament claims that, she had, that Jesus had set her free of no less than seven demons. She'd been all the way down before. She knew the way down. She understood that down eventually led to up, if you know the sequence. Remember, Lazarus had died in her living room while she waited with Jesus, waited for Jesus to intervene. And when Jesus finally arrives four days later after they laid him to rest, Mary and Jesus experienced together the stench of a rotting body before the grave clothes fell away. This would have stuck with Mary almost as much as the epic comeback. You see, death leads to new life. Death is never final. Death is only a doorway, a passageway, a changing of phase. It's not the end of the road. And who better than Mary, the wealthy underwriter, the, one, the woman one time tormented by seven devils. I did it. I got your town back in my sermon. This, who better than she, this wealthy underwriter of, Je- of Jesus' ministry to teach the world how to prepare for the difficult truth of what lay ahead now. Death is a powerful teacher. One single brush with it changes everything. This final thought. At the beginning, I mentioned that the cycle of death and rebirth isn't something owned by people of faith. We aren't just the only people who own the truth of Easter. It's the way that it all actually works for everyone, even Judas. We know, that John, we know what John thinks about Judas. He tells us, he puts it in parentheses, but don't forget, Jesus still goes on to serve Holy Communion to Judas, and he goes on to wash his feet too. Oh, I wonder, friends, I wonder if your heart has room for a hard truth today. And here's what it is. There was grace enough in the train of Jesus for Judas too. Now listen, I tried all week, I honestly did, to avoid saying what I'm about to say. I wanted the text to say something different. I tried to pump other ideas into it, but nothing but this came out. It's time now, friends, to sort out our allegiances. Are we friends of Jesus or are we betrayers? Or might we be both by week's end? You see, I'm okay with the gospel that makes brothers out of friends and friends out of neighbors and neighbors out of strangers. I can hang with that. But love doesn't stop there. Oh, I wish it did, but it doesn't. It never has. Love has always been about our enemies. And friends, friends who betray us must be the worst of all of those enemies. What Jesus doesn't do and say to Judas is the most shocking part of this text to me. You see, I've been falsely accused. I've been let down and dismissed and ridiculed and abandoned, and none of that is that big of a deal. But I've also been betrayed by people that I love and trusted, and that feels worse, doesn't it? That feels different. Surely we could be justified having just a short list of enemies. Surely we would be justified in in resisting serving, you know, a table meal with them or washing their feet in humility. Surely we could get a tiny little list of our betrayers and say, "It's, it's fair to hate these enemies. But no, friends, not in the world Jesus is making. So this text is about looming death and preparing for it, if you can see it. It's about extravagant worship offered by someone who had been to the very edge and back but it's also about Jesus' patience with those who don't quite get it yet. They will in time. We all will. Join me in prayer. Lord, we give you our hearts today. And we ask you to make of them what you can. And Lord, we give you the list of people we love to hate today. Because we know that is our to-do list. 
to love our enemy, even those we've loved profoundly and who have betrayed us. May our hearts hear that gospel today. In your name we pray.